this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Starting at verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thank you, Hannah, for reading uh, God's word to us this morning on Galatians chapter 2, 1 to 10. But let's... uh, Let's pray as we look at God's word together this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your precious people gathered here. Father, we pray that you will help us to submit ourselves to your word. We thank you that we can read this word, have it explained freely in our country. And Lord, you are the Lord of your word. Uh, we pray that your spirit will do a great work in our hearts and lives to understand this word, to apply it in our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, today, uh, this morning, uh, we return to our series on the book of Galatians after a mini-series on the Gospel of Mark leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And what a congregation we had on both Sundays. We praise God for the many who came and for the opportunity we had to to proclaim Christ. I do want to thank uh, the outreach team and all those who helped in many ways to uh, distribute flyers and to invite uh, family and friends to the services. So today we return back to our study in Galatians. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to the book of Galatians because we are going to study God's Word together this morning. Uh, So let me do a very brief uh, overview of what we have seen so far in our study of the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, We have noted that there was a problem with the churches in Galatia that threatened the very integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometime after the Apostle Paul had established the churches of Galatia, other teachers had come into the churches and started to preach a different gospel. A dangerous situation, isn't it, friends? When someone creeps into the church, pretends to be Christian, and then starts teaching a different gospel. This group had become known as the Judaizers. They were Jews. 
Well, what did they teach? They taught and insisted that Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, must be circumcised. They taught that the Gentiles are to keep the Jewish feast if they wanted to be justified in God and be saved. They taught that Paul's gospel of justification, that is, to be made right by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was not enough. And therefore, if you are a Christian, you want to be a Christian, you have to add these requirements onto the list, so to speak. And so it was Christ plus works. I'll do, I believe in Christ, but let me add a few things to make me acceptable by God. So if you are to be a Christian, they said, then you need to follow certain Jewish ceremonial laws and also be circumcised, remembering your particular culture as well. Tim Keller puts it this way. On the one side of the dispute, we have Paul, who is saying the gospel of faith in Christ is for people of all cultures. On the other hand, we have his opponents claiming not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. That's the problem. Not only did they insist of following these ceremonial laws and circumcision, but they also tried to undermine the authority of the Apostle Paul and in doing so to undermine the clarity and the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A very serious matter. And so they decided to attack Paul. And they said things like this. Paul was not part of the original disciples of Jesus. And therefore, he ought not to be taken very seriously. He was a lesser apostle. Clever strategy, right? Undermined the messenger. And in doing so, undermine the message itself. And therefore, Paul defended, made it very clear that the origin of the gospel that he received was a that he received this by revelation by Jesus Christ himself Christ gave it to him Paul defends the nature of his call as an apostle to the gentiles Jesus set him apart therefore his authority is from Jesus and then he went a step further to remind the judaizers that he himself prior to his conversion was burning with zeal and passion against Christians. Remember that? He went from house to house. Did he say, well done, you become a Christian? Fantastic, let me embrace you. No, no. He went from house to house, pulling these guys and wanting to send them to prison until one day, on the road to Damascus, a bright light. You can see these lights shining here. Right. Sometimes I'm blinded by it. No, it's not really. But this, this, a bright light that came upon and, and he was converted and Jesus spoke to him. And Paul, who was known as Saul, his life was changed and transformed. And so he says to these Judaizers, man, if you want to speak about your Judaism, if you want to say what a great Jew you are, well, you can't come close to me. <laughs> I did everything. I've said, I, I have studied the entire Torah. I know everything of the Old Testament. You can't even come close to me. 
So he defended that as well. And then the false teachers, the Judaizers who were from Jerusalem, seemed to be making the claim that they represented the apostles in Jerusalem and that their version of the gospel of the apostles in Jerusalem did not match up with Paul's gospel. And so what did Paul do? He was really afraid, a kind of concern that if the Judaizers had their way, then Christianity would be a Jewish sect rather than good news in the gospel to the entire world. You can see what is at stake here, right? In this passage. I looked at these 10 verses and I was thinking, where do I go with these 10 verses? How do I bring this message to a congregation? Because you look at the text and you think, uh, who's really going to be interested about Paul and Barnabas and Titus and all those kind of things? That's not really what we want to look at on a Sunday morning, perhaps at a message. What do we get out of this? Well, there's a lot actually. So what was at stake here was the truth and the preservation of the gospel. The question is this, is God's grace in Christ sufficient or not? And clearly, this was a problem that needed to be dealt with. It was a gospel issue. And so the question was, was there disunity amongst the apostles in Jerusalem on the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul's version of the gospel. And if there was disunity on the clarity of the gospel, then this would have serious implications for the church and the entire teaching of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. These are tremendous catchphrases. Very soon we'll be having a debate with our growth groups, right? On reformed aspect and Arminianism. We hope we will be having good arguments and come to a conclusion, we hope. Whoever is moderating that, uh, uh, that, that uh, debate will be in a very hot seat, I think, <laughs> right? Well, are we going to look at faith alone, Christ alone, solar gratia, right? All the solars, the five solars that we have a Reformation theology, or would we look at it the other perspective? So that was the issue here. Disunity in the gospel can mean massive implications for Christianity, massive implications for believers in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we are going to work our way through this Galatians passage, 2, 1 to 10, where we read of a meeting between Paul and the senior leadership, so to speak, of the Jerusalem apostles to deal with this matter. And they sought to make things clear about the unity they share in the gospel. And so we see this unfolding in verses uh, 1 to 10. And so this morning we look at two aspects here, the encounter that we see here and the endorsement that we have. The encounter and the endorsement. If you want an outline, well, that's kind of a basic outline this morning. Well, the encounter. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went, uh, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Paul mentions two visits to Jerusalem. The first one, three years after his conversion. The second visit is mentioned here. And again, he went up to Jerusalem after 14 years. And we read that he took his ministry team with him. Two guys. Their names, Barney, or Barnabas. Right. and Titus. Now what do we know about Barnabas, friends? 
What do we know about this guy Barnabas? Do you know Barnabas was not his real name? Right? We read this in Acts chapter 4, 36 to 37. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the disciple, sorry, the apostles nicknamed him Barney, uh, Barnabas. It's not right to call a person Barney, right? Now I'm sure some of us give nicknames to our family members. I have, in my, in my family in Sri Lanka, we, yeah, we give all kinds of names to my aunties and uncles. It's not their real name, but we call them by other names. In Sri Lanka, I was called by my friends by another Sri Lankan name. I won't mention that to you this morning. It means nothing. Right. I was actually called, I'll say this in Sinhalese, if any Sinhalese people here, yeah, Inikosa, which means broomstick. <laughs> That's the translation. Why was I called broomstick? Because I was thin as a rake. I mean, now I've kind of put on, see? Now it's hard work to be thin as a rake. And so people give nicknames, right? To, and, and Barnabas it was, was, his, was his name. He was a, his nickname, he was a generous man. And Paul and Barnabas, they actually had some massive sharp disagreements about John Mark. We read about this in verse 15, uh, in Acts chapter 15, sorry. You see, Barnabas was a son of encouragement. And encouragement is something that all believers, Christians, and whether you're not a Christian, need, right, in our lives. Anyone does not like to be encouraged? Don't raise your hand this morning, but just think about it. Right? Encouragement is what we need in our lives. Is that correct? You go to work on a Monday morning after a beautiful weekend, and somebody gives you a sharp word of discouragement, do you start the week really well? No. Right? Discouragement can bring us down. Right? Discouragement might say, give up. And Barnabas was a son of encouragement. For example, you might say, my studies are too hard. I'm just going to give it up. Oh, my marriage is really tough. It's hard work. I have actually, I'm not in love anymore in my marriage, so it's hard work. Let's just give up. They're encouragement. Work is too hard. Well, I'll give up. We need encouragement. Christian life is too hard. I'm going to give up. We need encouragement. And it's so easy to bring discouragement, right? Your wife has cooked a wonderful meal, and you can, oh, man, couldn't you put some salt and some chilies or something into this thing to bring the curry up a bit more? What are the flavors in this? Hey, Chris, I've cooked this. I've made this for you. Can't you understand? No food for you in the next few days. Cook it yourself. She doesn't say that, though. You know what I mean? Encouragement goes a long way, right? And Barnabas was Mr. Encouragement. And wouldn't it be wonderful for us to be known as Mr. Barnabas, Mrs. Barnabas, and Miss Barnabas? Think about it. So the Bible tells us to encourage each other. Very quickly there. Titus. Who was Titus? He was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew, a Greek, who was therefore uncircumcised. Titus was, a, was not a Jew. And so he was not circumcised, but he was a believer. He trusted in the saving work of Jesus. 
and therefore was accepted by God. And Titus was one of Paul's faithful associates. When problems arose in the church, Paul knew that he could depend on Titus to handle the situation. Brother Titus. And so Paul took Mr. Encourager and Paul took Mr. Faithful, Titus, to meet the apostles in Jerusalem. In verse 2, and I went up by revelation. I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And then in verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So Paul says, I went with Titus. I went by revelation. We don't know when that was, but the revelation was. He goes to meet with these apostles in Jerusalem. He takes Titus as his show and tell. Right? And when he met there, what happened was, he said, I am preaching this gospel to the Gentiles. You are of reputation. I'm not putting you down by any shape or form because uh, I, I respect your work. Don Carson puts it this way. Paul wants to use language flexible enough to show respect without betraying subservience. And Paul set out in this private setting the gospel that he preached. And then he said, even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was, com was not compelled in that sense to be, to, be, um, to be circumcised. So here's the test case, friends. Now both Luther and uh, John Stott are of the view that Titus was deliberately taken along by Paul to make a statement to the false teachers. That is, Titus has not been circumcised. Therefore, you can't ask anyone else to be circumcised to become a Christian. Do you see the problem here, friends? And now since the apostles in Jerusalem accepted Titus as a Christian, then why should the false teachers insist of circumcision to be a Christian. So there we have it, friends. And so what is this thing about circumcision? I'm not going to go into all the details here this morning, but we read this in Genesis chapter 17, the passage that uh, Russell read for us this morning. If you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, sorry, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and between you. All right? So circumcision, very quickly, to make the point here, under the terms of the old covenant, circumcision was instituted as one of the deeds that showed Israel's hope in the covenant Lord, Yahweh. It involved the male reproductive organ and it reminded the Israelites that the Lord had promised to increase their offspring and also that their children were part of the covenant. And the sign was given first to Abraham. And so circumcision was God's brand, so to speak, of his invisible mark of ownership on his people. And it was more than a Jewish identity. So, as a cutting, circumcision also reminded Israel that God had cut them out of or from this world to be his special possession, his people. They would be cut off from all his blessings. 
if they unrepentantly broke covenant with God. That's the point. But now, friends, with the coming of Jesus under the new covenant, baptism is the counterpart of circumcision. All right? So we don't have circumcision anymore. And it is therefore God's mark of identity for us that we are his. We are in this sense, in our baptism, branded to be God's people. That's the point. And so when we witness a baptism, we should be reminded of the mark we carry that we belong to God. The false teachers missed the point by insisting that Gentile Christians must be circumcised to be Christians. What a thing, eh? And then in verse 5, Paul says, We did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue. No way, Paul said. Paul did not give in to the false teachers and the compromise of the truth of the gospel. And then we see the endorsement here, don't we? In verses 6 to 10. And from those seem to be influential, what they, were, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, Paul says. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, because God worked both in, in both of us. This is the point. What Paul is saying here is, I am respecting these apostles. They are wonderful pillars, as he would say later. But God shows no partiality. It does not make a difference for me, Paul is saying. It, their influence has done nothing in that sense to do anything to me because I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. That is, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And Peter has been entrusted to whom? To the Jews. So it's like today, two ministers in a congregation, for example, one is entrusted to do a particular work with a particular ethnic group, the other to another ethnic group, but both are preaching the same gospel, the same message. That's the point, friends. We can't preach another message. You see, Paul is saying, notice in verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, and then he says in verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, God called Peter, set him to the, to the Jews. God called me and set my work to the non-Jews. It's the same God who worked in both our hearts. You see that point? The God who works with one person, works with the other person, is the same God who works in, if I was to apply it here this morning, applies, it works in all of our hearts, right? Whether you are from Sri Lanka or from India or from Australia, I can't forget that. God is the same God who works in all people groups. 
And this is Paul is saying, he's the same God who called me, same God at work in Peter's life. And then, Peter, James, and John, they needed to view God, Paul's ministry seriously. And John Stott makes this observation. He says this, it was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, but could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion into Judaism? And then he says this, was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God. That's the point. That the gospel is now not just to Jews, but the gospel is international. As I stand here on this pulpit, what do I see? I see an international group here, right? And you see me in this church, which was a very Scottish church, I've been an Asian minister in front of you. How's that? And we have an assistant minister who is also an Asian brother in Christ. Does that make any difference? Of course not. Because we are an international family of God. We do ministry to all people. We don't go and say, okay, you're from Sri Lanka, you get a special treatment here. Are you from Fiji? Man, no, you don't get any social treatment. I won't say that to our Fijian brothers here. I'll be in big trouble with Bina and Nalin. <laughs> the point is, we treat the gospel to everybody because this gospel is now international news. Goes to all people, all ethnic groups. And to be part of the family of God is not to be circumcised, not to put in rules and regulations to make it Christianity plus, but to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and as my Savior, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. That's the point. See, they endorsed the gospel, didn't they? That Paul preached, basically. The gospel that Paul preached, Peter as the apostle to the Jews, Paul as an apostle to uh, the Gentiles. And then we see something else here, don't we? That this gospel is the same gospel. Let me tell you a story. The story is told of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who arrived at the chapel at a place called Arbourville in the 19th century. He got a bit late. When he arrived there to preach, he found his grandfather already in the pulpit preaching away. When the grandfather saw the young Spurgeon walk in, he said, Here comes my grandson. All smiles grandfather he said this he may preach the gospel better than I can but he cannot preach a better gospel did we get that he can preach the gospel better than I can but he cannot preach a better gospel because there is only one gospel now, this is not exactly what Paul is kind of saying here, but like the grandfather Spurgeon, with regard to Charles Spurgeon, Paul maintains that his gospel is the same as that which is preached by Peter, James, and John, 
were identified as pillars of the church. You know, I heard about this expression, pillars of the church, from my parents many years ago when I became a new Christian and I was talking to, to them about church and people in the church. And my mother used to say, ah, so-and-so was a pillar, is a pillar in the church. And I'm thinking like, what? A pillar? What do you mean by a pillar? They are human beings. They are the people, right? And then what she meant was, you know, the church, they are the pillars. They work behind the scenes. They are the ones that keep the spiritual structure going. You know what I mean? Paul is saying, these guys are the pillars of the church, but they have accepted my gospel that I preach. It's the same, the same gospel. It is not different. And so what did they do, friends? They, they did something here, right? Have a look at um, verse 9. Uh, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship. Now, how many of you have been, uh, you've been to an induction or ordination of a minister in the Presbyterian church or an elder? Have you ever witnessed it? Some of you, you would have. You would have seen me being inducted here, yeah, right? Maybe not many of you. <laughs> We've seen John being inducted here as our assistant minister of elders. What happens? Once they're inducted, once they're ordained into office, the, the presbytery would come up, if it's the case of a minister, and they would give to the minister inducted the... You see these guys, the elders coming up, what do they do? The right hand of fellowship. They'll say a few words to you, right? And they'll encourage you, and they say, God bless you, brother. The right hand of fellowship means we are giving to you our blessing in this work and we are with you with the work. And so the right hand of fellowship, affirming this work. And so friends, this morning, we see that Paul is being encouraged here to continue that work. There is one gospel. And then verse 10, they decide only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now let me just say this. The grace of the gospel leads to works. The gospel of God's free grace in Christ does not undermine good works. Good works stems from the gospel. You see, I'll just say this. I wrote a thesis for my, uh, my degree. And the thesis that I did was on the social gospel movement. That time, I didn't have a computer and all that. The typewriter did the job. I gave Rose to read the document. Poor Rose, she had to make all those adjustments. And then, of course, it finally printed. But I did a research paper on, on the topic of the social gospel and the Rauschenbusch movement. You know what happened there was that the gospel then was, you see the danger. The danger is if we only focus on the social aspect of things, such as making poverty, history, and all, the, all good things, but the poor you will always remain in this world. We know that. Right? If you only focus on doing humanitarian work without the gospel, we have missed the mark, right? Because then it becomes humanitarian work. On the other hand, if you only focus on the gospel, which we must because the gospel is the one that saves people, but do no good works and don't care for the poor, we are not actually illustrating the grace of God given to me in his rich generosity of Christ to help my poor brother or sister. So I say to somebody who's poor in the congregation, somebody comes up and say, ah, 
I haven't had any, I don't think it happens here, but just hypothetically. I haven't had anything to eat these past few days. I'm really suffering. What should I say? Might I'll pray for you, right? I'll pray for you. So you just go home, I'll pray for you. Is that the way we would treat someone? <laughs> no, we wouldn't. Because the gospel of God's grace will say, what can I do for my brother or for my sister? What can I do for my suffering people, uh, God's people in the world? How generous can I be to take care of the poor? Because Jesus did. You see, Jesus moved with the broken heart. Did he not? With the downtrodden. The gospel moves us to be generous. And we are so blessed in Australia, aren't we? Look at our place. When we go home, you go to the supermarket. I mean, sometimes I go to the shops and I look at things. I, don't, I look at buying sometimes two-minute noodles. I know it's not the best thing to eat. But how many varieties of two-minute noodles you have on the shelf? I'm lost. You go to buy cornflakes or, or washing powder or something. Like there are ten things there and you think, man, what am I going to pick? I have no idea. So when I go shopping, Rose says, don't go shopping because the grocery bill has gone up by 10 times because I put everything that I need into the trolley. You see, we are so blessed in our country, don't we? None of us have to go home and think what we're going to eat today, do you? You open the pantry cupboard, you open the fridge, there'll be food all over. We are so blessed. And so generosity, Paul is saying, I mean, this is of course in the context there to the, to the, to the poorer churches, the, 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 the Gentile churches were richer than the, the other churches, so uh, this is what has been encouraged here. Martin Luther writes this, a very important point, he says this. After preaching of the gospel, the office and charge of a true pastor is to be mindful of the poor. So let's wrap this up. The Jewish churches were much poorer than the Gentile churches, and so the challenge, and so we have it in Acts chapter 6 and so forth. In conclusion, friends, are we preserving, how do we preserve the truth of the gospel? It is fundamental. Imagine for a moment if there was disunity about the clarity of the gospel in this church with the elders and the ministers of our church. Imagine that. Imagine Pastor John Wing has one view of the gospel and is preaching one gospel and I come up and preach another gospel. What would it do to our church? chaos. Thank the Lord for our elders, friends. In our eldership, we have lots of discussions, lots of debates, disagreements. We deal with issues that you are not even aware of. Confidential matters that takes hours to deal with. But never, I mean our last meeting went on till 11 o'clock, but never have we had any issue, never, regarding the clarity of the gospel in the eldership? Never, as long as I've been here. I've sat in churches and sessions where it has not been the case. So thank the Lord for that. So as we wind up again, we cannot insist on other things to be brought into the gospel. We cannot expect others to bring their own cultures and so forth to, de to define the clarity of the gospel. It is like saying to those who are not native Australians, people like myself, 
you have made Australia, who have made Australia an adopted country. Hey, Chris, if you truly want to be an Australian Christian, you have to adopt the Australian culture. That is, you have to learn to say, good day, mate. I mean, right? Or you have to learn to eat lamb on a barbecue. No, nothing wrong with that. You have to eat Vegemite. If you don't, well, problem. I, I, by the way, I love Vegemite. You've got to eat lamingtons and damper and all that. It's, you see all my illustrations about food? Or you've got to wear a Kubra hat and walk around. Imagine me walking with a Kubra hat. That would be stylish. Does any of these things make us Christians? No. Preserving the truth of the gospel is fundamental because it is good news of God's saving work in Jesus Christ, his son. Whether you are from this culture or not. His blood. The, the gospel is all about Jesus. More specifically, it is about his loving sacrifice at Calvary. His blood has cleansed us of every sin. And his death has brought us abundant and everlasting life. And you discover that he is righteous, accepted and favored before God. And so are you and I. That's the blessing. Did you know this Jesus this morning? Did you trust him? Do you love this Lord? Do you say, Lord, there is my life. Thank you. It's all yours. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that this gospel is good news to us, Lord. We pray that as a church, as individuals, we will always preserve the truth of the gospel, that it will not be contaminated with anything, Lord, but to proclaim it and to live it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.